we're taking a short break from the book of Exodus. This has been the plan all along, was to try to go verse by verse through the book of Exodus, but to take breaks here and there. And so beginning today, we'll be in a three-part series called Welcome Home that's going to deal with hospitality, generosity, and stewardship. And our objective in this series is to try to kind of tie together some ideas, some concepts that have emerged all the way back in the very first sermon series that I preached here in 2019 called Son of Man. We're going to try to wrap that in with a little bit of what we learned working through the book of Ephesians, talking about unity and how we interact with the world, uh, some of the themes that have emerged in Exodus regarding how God sets his people apart but then calls them into obedience that brings other people into that sense of being called apart. So just to give you an idea of the roadmap for the rest of 2021, uh, we will be in this series for three weeks, the last weekend in September, we will begin part three of Exodus. And we're subtitling that, uh, those nine chapters of Exodus Stockholm Syndrome because the primary issue in the life of God's people is, believe it or not, they want to go back into slavery. So we'll see that almost every single week, what that means and how we can connect to that. We'll take a four-week break for Advent. This year we're going to be in the early chapters of the book of Luke dealing with four songs that happen around Jesus' birth. And then we'll jump back into Exodus part four when God's people leave Mount Sinai having received the law. Uh, and we'll finish Exodus in early 2022, probably mid-February. So just to give you an idea of the roadmap, if you have an Exodus scripture journal, you'll still need it. You can try to stick it somewhere where you're going to find it in three weeks. Uh, bring it back with you. You can bring it every week if you want to and take notes on this series. We won't be in Exodus as far as I know uh, at any point in the next three weeks. But it's up to you. If that's easier, you have that rhythm. Don't break it. We're people, creatures of habit a lot of times. Um, so my attempt in this series in, in discussing the concept of welcoming other people is to try to engage with what we are actually supposed to do. Those of us who claim Jesus as our Savior, who would say that we are disciples of Jesus, what are some of the primary attitudes or postures that we're supposed to have in our heart and our life toward other people, toward the world, those who are saved, those who are not, those who are still wandering or lost, those who've walked away from our faith, and especially what does our relationship with what we have uh, look like in the midst of people who've been turned into followers of Jesus? If you are here and that does not apply to you, you would say, I'm not a disciple of Jesus. I'm not a disciple of anybody but myself. Well, I think you're in the right place at the right time. God willing, you'll hear me say some things today and in the next two weeks that will demonstrate to you that even when the church looks like it doesn't really care about Jesus' teaching, uh, it's the responsibility of people like me and I think a lot of the people in this congregation to call that out and try to course correct based on the teaching and the way of Jesus. So that's what we're going to try to do is we're going to talk about some broad concepts that you possibly already have a definition for in your own life. I want to try to redefine them based solely on the example of who Jesus is in Scripture. So in order to talk about the life that we're supposed to live when we begin to follow Jesus, we need to zoom in on one of the most famous and potentially impactful parts of the New Testament. Um, so I'd like to ask you to participate. I don't usually make you do this. You don't have to. You're not going to score any points here if you do or don't. But if you would just help me know as we navigate this topic by raising your hand, have you ever heard the phrase, the Great Commission? Probably most, if not all. Okay, perfect, good. That's, so most of us have, right? So I'm not going to actually read through it. That'll save me a little bit of time. But if I can just summarize, maybe remind you of what we're dealing with when we talk about the Great Commission, what we mean is Jesus' last set of instructions to his 11 remaining disciples, one of, the, one of the 12, the original 12, took his own life around the same time that Jesus died because I think he was so riddled with remorse for the role that he played in that act. But Jesus met with his disciples at the end of 40 days of being alive post-resurrection and he gave them one last charge. 
And he never actually says this is the Great Commission, but that's sort of how we refer to it. In summary, what Jesus does is he communicates to his disciples that their task, their agenda for the remainder of their lives on earth is to try to connect other people to Jesus in the same way that they themselves have been connected. They would have self-described as disciples. Their relationship with Jesus was that of following a rabbi. And Jesus says, I want you to go and make more disciples. I want you to connect people who have no idea who I am or, or what I've said or what I've done to me in a way that's so meaningful that it would lead to their own baptism. That's sort of the sign that Jesus hands down to this new kind of disciple-making process, that when you decide that Jesus' words and works, his way and his teaching are significant enough that you're going to begin to build your life on them, you, you demonstrate that that's true in your life by being baptized. You show that you've gone from a way of death, which is living selfishly according to your own way, according to culture or society and what it values, and you transition into living according to Jesus' way, which he describes as life, eternal life that can begin now. Once Jesus makes that clear, he tells the disciples, I think this is really funny, he tells the disciples he will never leave them, and then he immediately leaves them, which is so funny to me. It's just like Jesus to say a thing and then have us misinterpret it, right? He's like, I'll be with you forever, and then he ascends, and they kind of go, uh... Uh, I thought, is this, forever was shorter than I thought it would be, Jesus. I don't know. It seemed like it was just a few seconds. But when he leaves, okay, he gives us that impetus. That's sort of him, if, if I can use this analogy for you, that's him kind of gently nudging the boat of Christianity off the shore. It's been anchored with this small group of people in his life, personally relating to him in the flesh. And Jesus is saying, okay, here's the wind for your sails, and I'm going to get you started. Go. And as you go, demonstrate the power, show people what I can do, connect them to my life, and make them into my disciples. And then when you do, baptize them. So that chapter uh, at the end of Matthew, the very last words in the book of Matthew, is what we call the Great Commission. And it's the impetus. It's the starting motion for what we would call evangelism. Evangelism has the same language root, the same etymological root as evangelical. So most, if not all of us, would say we either currently identify as an evangelical or we used to, and maybe we just aren't sure what that label even means anymore, but if we can trace it back to its root, we would agree it's typically a good thing. It's about being people who try to introduce, to do what Jesus said, to introduce the ideas of Jesus, his way, his life, his teaching, into the lives of other people in hopes that he will move them from death into life. The root of both evangelism and evangelical is a Greek word, that is pronounced, well, we think, nobody speaks ancient Greek, but it seems like it's pronounced euangelion. Will you try to say that with me on three? One, two, three. Euangelion. Yeah, you speak Greek now. Good for you. Euangelion is a combination of two other Greek words that together mean good news. So when we read the gospel according to Matthew or the gospel according to Mark or Luke or John, what we're reading, if we can just kind of parse that out and break it into pieces, is the good news from John's perspective, the good news from Matthew's perspective or Mark's perspective or Luke's perspective according to what they can remember and what they lived. And we believe at True North that Scripture is inspired by the Spirit of God, so it's not just their random collection of memories. It's the ones that God wanted them to remember in the same order, and it's knit together in a way so that we can trust it. It's trustworthy. That's another sermon for another time. But the point I'm trying to make to you is, is that to evangelize, to participate in evangelism is very simply to share the good news, if we can mix it up a little bit with our language here, I know this isn't exactly how grammatically you should say it, but it's to good newsify another person. 
good newsifies someone, is to expose them to and introduce them to the good news of Jesus, his way, his works, his ministry. And interestingly to me, it implies that we're telling the whole story. Evangelism or gospel, good news, implies the entirety of what Jesus did. Not just his life, but his life and his death. And not just his life and death, but his life and death and resurrection. And that can seem like a mouthful, maybe for you if you're like me, you're engaging with that and going, boy, I think that explaining all that might actually take a lot longer than I thought it would. Maybe my concept of what evangelism is and how it works is a little bit off potentially. We're going to go further down that road in this series. But what I want you to understand is it's baked into the definition of what the good news is that it's good news. And that it should be received as good news. That when it lands, when it lodges in your heart, it produces the kind of response that good news produces. If I can hearken back to the King James version of the Bible, the King James would say that to share the gospel is to uh, hearken or share the, the glad tidings of the Lord. It's interesting to me. Because I think, based on my experience, I'm 30 years old, almost 31. I think for most of you that means I'm a grown-up. I think it is. I'm trying to do grown-up stuff with my life. But for my 30-year experience, I've spent pretty much every Sunday in a church somewhere. I grew up in a church where my dad worked. I participated in church ministry almost immediately once I got to college. Worked at a summer camp for a little while, but did church things just outside. I think it still counts. And then I've been in churches serving and working all the way until the point that I have the job that I have now. And I have been exposed to lots of different versions of what we might call evangelism. And what I think is true is that most of the forms of evangelism that we've been either subjected to or that we've participated in have only been about some of the good news. Just a piece of it, a little bit. Like maybe we've only talked about Jesus' death on the cross in the place of other people which don't hear me wrong, is absolutely essential. The gospel can never be less than that. Or we've only talked about Jesus' resurrection and how that paves the way to heaven. And we've painted this picture of a glorious afterlife that has very little to do with the day-to-day comings and goings of our lives. Which again, I believe there is a glorious afterlife and eternity is a place that Jesus promised to go and prepare a place for you and I, absolutely. But it's a piece of that. These things are essential, but they're not the entirety of the gospel itself. And although the part of evangelism, if you're a person who's practiced this before, sharing your faith with another person, the part where we tell someone that Jesus died for them and can be saved is good news, oftentimes it's just sort of at the very end of a much longer presentation that frankly is mostly bad news. And we spend a lot of our time, I think, trying to convince people that they have an issue that needs to be solved And what we do is we don't take advantage of any kind of relationship or familiarity with that person, but we somewhat, like a doctor, make a spiritual evaluation and diagnosis of another person without even really caring if they want to receive that diagnosis or not. And unfortunately, what that leads to is hostility. It leads to a sense of being bombarded, of being invaded, of having somebody parachute into your life without asking permission and then revealing a whole lot of stuff that, even if it's true, is couched in terms that makes it incredibly hard to move into any kind of relationship with that person, to actually engage with something meaningful, a conversation that could lead into life because we've started out as enemies right out of the gate. Oftentimes, this sense of presentation, if you will, offers almost no feeling or or any kind of sense of gladness or goodness at all. 
For those of us who are inside the church, if we're really, really honest, and I can see your faces, you can't see each other's, just trust me here. When I say the word evangelism, when I said it about four minutes ago, some of you immediately, your posture changed. Okay, when you're, a, when you're a public communicator, you can kind of sense if people are with you or not. Most of the time when people are engaged, they're leaned forward, they're looking at you, they're somewhat nodding maybe if they're expressive, but this moment can happen when you say something people don't like and they all kind of collectively lean back. Like, okay, maybe you're going to say a bunch of stuff that I don't want to hear today. Okay, cool, maybe I should have gone somewhere else with my time. I can sense for some of you that this is a little bit uncomfortable. And some of us at the extreme end of this, if you're very introverted and you had a really bad experience with evangelism training of some kind when you were a younger person, it can put us in a position where our heart rate increases. We begin to panic. We begin to freak out and go, oh, no, what is the pastor going to tell me i got to do this week? Am I supposed to call everybody from my yearbook from high school and ask them if they're going to go to heaven when they die? I don't really, we start to freak out a little bit. And I just, when I read Jesus' way, when I read his interactions with the disciples, I don't see him putting himself in that position. I don't see him putting that kind of immediate pressure on people like that. Jesus is the most effective evangelist in history. Nobody has a higher win rate, if you will, of times where they've shared the gospel and had people immediately respond and be all in than Jesus himself. And so I think it's possible that his method is worth digging into a little bit, especially in 2021, where most of us, we live in sort of a digital wasteland where we receive so many sound bites of information constantly that a gospel presentation, if you will, falls into a category of information that we can be exposed to and immediately dismiss. Because it's how we handle stuff. It's how we process updates from our friends from college. It's how we process text messages from all of our friends all day long. It's how we process any group text thread that we're in. If you actually sit and meaningfully read through your group texts every day, you're a better person than I am. I skim it for what I need, and sometimes I even just mute the notifications. No offense to you if you're in a group text with me, but I have other things to do with my life. It's the way we process news. It's the way that we interact with Instagram stories or Facebook stories. It's, it's 30 seconds or less of something. And I think when people encounter a gospel presentation that's not couched in a relationship, they, they're already hardwired to just flush it. They just flush it and move to the next thing. I mean, we try a drip feed sometimes, don't we, of just slowly integrating concepts and Bible verses and truth into the way that we communicate with people. I think there must be a better way. I think that if you're like me, and you've inherited forms of evangelism that maybe were very effective from the 1950s all the way through the 2000s, you might be looking around yourself and thinking, they're not working now. In fact, they seem to almost be combative in a way that's causing more distance than it is proximity to the gospel. Instead of feeling like an agent of reconciliation, I feel like an agent of division all over the place all the time. So what do we do? Maybe for you, you think that it, there's a strategy that the church should be doing more of. I don't know. Maybe it's gospel tracts for you. you. On Sunday, you guys go out to eat, and instead of tipping your waitress, you leave her a fake $100 bill, and on the back it says, where's your heart? Is your heart in money, waitress? Don't you want to go to heaven when you die? Which is not a good idea, and please never do that. Uh, maybe for some of you, you come from the Midwest. I've driven across the state of Nebraska before and seen huge billboards in cornfields calling me to repentance without ever explaining to me what that means or why I would be able to do that. Or maybe you think it's my job. 
Maybe you're hopeful that if you can just trick your friends into coming to church. We have a name like True North. Maybe they'll think it's a farmer's market or something. I don't know. And you get them in the room, and then I'll do a really good job of being clever and creative and putting some new spin on the old gospel, and you'll sit there, and you'll just pray to God in heaven that I won't mention money or politics or gender or sex or refugees or masks or vaccines or sports or any part of the Old Testament, and I'll never reference my smoking hot wife, Andy. Right? That's a youth group joke for you. If you were in youth group, yeah, that's right. She is, by the way, but that's between me and the Lord. So we laugh, right? We laugh at best, but we kind of cringe. And we go, ooh, I don't know about this. A month ago, we had an open forum as a vision team about sharing the gospel. You know how many people came to that? Zero. Because nobody had any ideas. We can sense that something is not going good, but we don't have a better solution to that. We're not sure what to do. But I think what our call is, is to return to the way of Jesus. And that's the heart of what I want to get to, is I believe that sometimes we are more interested in creating a number that can be reported to somebody somewhere. Or we want to, to find a, maybe more of a personal moral win, that we got a person that we love across some sense of a finish line. But I think a better way in the way of Jesus includes relationship. It relies upon us being connected to people. I read a lot of data this past week from the American Center for Surveys. You might not believe this, but 52% of Americans would say that they have no close friends. None. Of those surveyed, two-thirds of men could not think of an example in the last week of anybody demonstrating emotional support to them. Men are more isolated than women, typically by far and away, often as a product of our culture. But the way of Jesus seems to expect there to be relationships, and not just life group relationships, Christian to Christian, but real, meaningful relationships with people who might be our ideological opponents when it comes to our faith, who might be very offended by some of the things that we hold as valuable and right and true. And frankly, church, it is not the responsibility of those people to find a way to tolerate us. It is our responsibility to find a way to be in their lives, to engage them, to know them. When Jesus shared his gospel, at least according to the four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he typically couched the good news of the coming of the kingdom of heaven in three sets of categories. And I think each of those categories targeted or honed in on a specific kind of person. So you heard in the video that we played today some definitions to words. You probably didn't have time to catch them. I want to just quickly show them to you. If you want to take notes, you can write these down. The first was hospitality. I define hospitality by showing mercy to our neighbors, by sharing our domestic rhythms. Now, domestic doesn't just mean it has to happen at home. It, it communicates the idea of dominion, your life, all the things you can reach and touch, the people you can affect. Are you willing to bring people along in that setting or not? Or are you sort of this privatized American version of a human being that's only about your goals and your objectives and can't see anybody else or see their needs to the credit of my sister who spoke? I mean, we have to be able to see people, acknowledge the need that they have, generosity, to participate in the future of another by giving without reciprocity. Can I give you something and never expect anything back and not even have the tiniest hope in my heart that you'll acknowledge me? Am I even capable of that? Do we have the spiritual maturity required to be able to truly give our lives away, not lend them, not rent them out in the hopes that we receive some kind of social or moral payback at some point, but can we give because it's right and it's the way that Jesus lived? And finally, stewardship. To cultivate creation because we are image bearers to the creator. Following in his footsteps looks like investing in things. And I'm not just saying investing in the financial sense. That's a piece of it. 
but finding time and energy and other resources that we have to put into the lives and the movement of other people because we believe that they bear the image of God. So today we're going to interact with hospitality. We're going to look at two stories from Jesus' life in the book of Luke, and the first is in Luke chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 1. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to head that direction with me. If not, you'll be able to follow along on the screen, no problem. If you're new to Christianity or new to the church, you may not be familiar with the Bible. The book of Luke is in the New Testament. Feel free to use your table of contents if you want. It is the third of four books, all in a row, all collected together, that tell the story of Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is walking, and he enters the ancient city of Jerusalem in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. Now, tax collectors, for you and I, that's a career you can have. If you work for the IRS in the house today, the Bible is not trying to speak down to you. What's going on in this story is Zacchaeus is representative of a man who has betrayed his people, but still lives among them. As a tax collector, Zacchaeus would have been a person who was ethnically Jewish, who was probably born and grew up in Jericho. All his friends are there. He went to Jericho High School, but he still lives in town. Now, though, instead of being a part of the Jewish people who are somewhat resisting the Roman occupation that they've been living with for a very long time, his allegiance is to Rome. So his job is to go and collect the taxes that the Roman government tells him that he needs to send back to Rome to justify them occupying Israel. Because he's a tax collector, because he has the backing and the support and literally a physical escort of Roman centurions, he is able to add any percentage on top of that tax rate that he wants to, and then he just keeps that at his house. So maybe the Roman tax rate is 30%. Well, Zacchaeus is thinking that he's got a kid that's about to head off to Jericho University, and it's going to be important that they start making some investments, and so he's going to add another 30% on top of that tax rate. That would be insane. That would be unheard of. You and I would be online tweeting that so fast, we'd we'd be tagging the IRS on Twitter and making sure everybody knew this happened. In the city of Jericho, Zacchaeus can get away with this kind of thing. And a tax collector in his day and age would have lived very similarly to a drug lord in our day and age. He would have lived in somewhat of a compound. He would have had a constant armed guard at his home. And he would have lived in a big enough piece of property that his family basically could come and go without having to interact with anybody else in the city. Because he would have understood very clearly the social cost of the kinds of decisions that he was making. So he's scum in his culture. There's nobody worse than Zacchaeus because he is a tax collector. So that gives you a little background on what's going on. Now, in verse 3, this is so funny. If you grew up in church, you probably know a song about Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, right? A wee little man was he? It's kind of redundant. But anyway, kids' songs. I guess that's how it goes. What's interesting, this is just a side note. This is for free for you. In Greek, the pronoun he is not directly connected to Zacchaeus. We don't actually know if he's short or not. It could have been that Jesus was too short to be seen over the crowd of other people. Just an interesting tidbit for you. You should always challenge the kinds of things that people teach you and make sure that it's coming from the Bible. So, in short, Zacchaeus has decided to run ahead of Jesus. He knows he's coming. He's heard about Jesus' reputation, and he wants to at least see him. He wants to put a name with a face. He wants to connect with him in a way that maybe is more meaningful than just hearing the stories or being aware of the teaching. And so he runs, in verse 4, ahead, and he climbs a sycamore tree. Because Jesus was coming. So now you have an IRS agent in the trees above the crowd, which if you've been trying to dodge your taxes is pretty nerve-wracking for you, right? You're like, who's he looking for? What is this guy doing? I mean, this is the equivalent of somebody who has a known reputation of trafficking some kind of uh, banned substance just being up in a tree downtown. People are going to notice that guy. They're going to see him. They're going to avoid him. This is going to cause a ruckus. Now, Jesus, being Jesus, embraces this. Verse 5, when he came to that place where the tree was, 
He looked up and he said Zacchaeus' name to him. We have no idea how he knows Zacchaeus' name. Maybe it's because he's God. Maybe it's because it's of Zacchaeus' reputation. But he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus did. He hurried and he came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they all rejoiced, right? They loved it. They thought, good for Jesus for loving on this guy who's marginalized, who doesn't fit in, who doesn't ever have an opportunity to come to the temple because we all hate him so bad that we'd try to kill him if he did that. No, they grumbled. The crowd looks around and goes, this is, the, this is Jesus' big finish today? This is his, his, the climax of him walking through our city? Is he's going to eat with this guy? Where are the miracles? Where are the signs? What's Jesus going to do for me? They say he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus in this story is the very last person anybody expected Jesus to eat with. He's the absolute bottom of the moral hierarchy of his day. And, and we don't really have a consensus idea of who is the bottom of our modern moral hierarchy. So what I would ask you to do is just pic- picture in your head whoever you would be most shocked that Jesus would go to dinner with. Maybe for you it's a specific politician who you think represents only death and decay and, and the furtherance of horrible things in the human race. Maybe it's a local person, somebody at your work or your boss that you know is skimming money off the top and nobody can seem to catch him and you don't want to lose your job so you, you haven't spoken up. It could be a family member. It could be a person that you would never associate with who if you were standing on the street corner next to you would move away just to make sure nobody thought you guys were together. And if you don't have a good concept of Jesus, just think of, picture like a very conservative independent Baptist preacher, like a suit and tie, King James, Schofield study Bible. Who would you be shocked to think that a guy like that would ever go to dinner with? This is sort of our modern equivalent of what's going on in this story. It's not just frustrating, it's offensive that Jesus would do this. It changes other people's understanding of who he is. It calls his character into question. Verse 8, in response to this, coming to Jesus' house, or excuse me, Zacchaeus' house, eating with Jesus, sharing a meal, Zacchaeus stood up from the table. Everybody eats kind of reclining in this culture. They're laying on their side. He gets up on his feet, and he says to Jesus, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anybody of anything, then I will restore it. I'll give it back times four. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, Zacchaeus, also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus met Jesus, and his life was changed immediately. And Jesus interpreted that change as salvation. Zacchaeus became a disciple of Jesus in his own house over a meal with Jesus. And then Jesus said in verse 10, this is why I came. So so what I would say to you is we don't actually need something new or creative when it comes to our evangelism. We don't need a new brilliant idea. We actually need to return to something ancient. Something radically ordinary. We need to share the truth and the power and the good news, all of it, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the way that he did. And in this story, we see that the setting in which he connected with another person and then told them the good news was over a meal. Now, this is interesting because for you and I, Jesus isn't interacting in a way that we would expect, right? Our 1950s to early 2000s models of evangelism would be pretty different from this. There's no lengthy sermon for Jesus where he has to yell and raise his voice and condemn and threaten hell to people in order for them to take him seriously. There's no aggressive attempt to sort of strong arm Zacchaeus into admitting that he's wrong so that Jesus can leverage that guilt into a decision. Jesus sees the man, meets the man. They spend time at Zacchaeus' home over a meal, and by the end of that encounter, Zacchaeus can tell, he can sense 
in his inner man that he has found what he's been looking for. He's ready to change his career. He's ready to lose his allegiance to Rome. If he pays back all that he's taken times four, he's not going to be a tax collector anymore. If he gives away half of what he has, that's going to include his household. It's going to include his property. He'll no longer be able to continue to function in this lifestyle that he's had. He's even willing to forfeit the fortune he's amassed to go above and beyond making his sins right to to actually helping the poor, to giving generously to them. True transformation, which is evidenced by Zacchaeus immediately becoming unrecognizable to the people who were just grumbling about Jesus. All the things they hated about him have changed immediately. This is why Jesus is dining with Zacchaeus. And this is one of two times in the book of Luke that Luke refers to or references when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This is the second time. The first is in Luke chapter 7. So if you'll go with me, this is where we're going to land the plane today. I want you to hear this from Jesus. Because what we just read in Luke 19, this is the second of two times. And Jesus is saying, the Son of Man came to do this, to seek and save the lost. So then it's not a surprise, right? When we get to the Great Commission at the end of Jesus' time on earth, and he tells us that we need to do the same thing, we get that. But Jesus is going to explain his method in further detail in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 33. For context for you, Jesus is speaking to a crowd. A big crowd has gathered because he's been doing miracles for a little while. Two of John the Baptist's disciples came to visit Jesus so they could take a report back to John. And while they're standing there, Jesus casts out some demons. He heals the sick. He demonstrates his power and authority so that they have testimony to go back and share with John the Baptist. Jesus is speaking, and he says this in verse 33, to the crowd. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread. He's come drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. You crowd of people believe the way he does any kind of powerful work is because he's demon-possessed. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him. He is a glutton and a drunkard, which is not true. Jesus is not a glutton nor a drunkard, but he got that reputation from hanging out with people like Zacchaeus. He is a friend of tax collectors, again, the scum, and sinners. Yet, verse 35, wisdom is justified by all of her children. In other words, talk is cheap, but Jesus walks the walk. If I am wise, if I am right, then eventually the impact I've made will prove that to you, is what Jesus is saying when he says wisdom is justified by all of her children. Now it's interesting that this is the first point in Luke that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he says about himself, not that he came teaching and preaching, not that he came healing and exercising demons, though he did all four of those things. He says the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And this is his method. Let's keep reading. One of the Pharisees who's standing there asks Jesus to come to dinner with him. I think this is just a really bad decision on the Pharisee's part, but whatever, he's probably trying to score some social points by being the guy who Jesus ate at his house. So one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and they went into the Pharisee's house, and they reclined at the table, as they typically do to eat. And behold, a woman of the city came in to the house. She was a sinner. This is a New Testament euphemism for a sex worker. All the commentators agree that would, that would have been her lifestyle. Because she had learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. And we, we learn in a few verses that the Pharisee's name is Simon. So I'm going to refer to him as Simon just to make everybody clear on who's sitting where at the table and what's going on here. She brought with herself an alabaster flask of ointment. You can think of that as perfume, sort of a thin, fragrant oil that you would rub on a body, typically a dead body to keep it from stinking in the time that it had to be moved into its grave. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, so if he's reclining, kind of sitting side saddle on his knees, she's back behind him. She doesn't even come around to the front of him and speak to him. She just walks in, goes to where his bare, dirty feet are, and she begins to wet his feet with her tears. Why is she crying? We don't know exactly, but we can assume that Jesus' reputation was sufficient enough for her to believe that this man could save her from something. 
that forgiveness was available in the presence of this man, and that if she could just get access to him, her life would change. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with the hair of her head, which is incredibly taboo, as is still the case in many Middle Eastern countries, for a woman to expose her hair was paramount to nudity in our culture. She lets her hair all the way down, and then she begins to touch it to his body, cleaning it, wiping it. Then she kissed his feet, also very taboo for her to do. He was obviously not her husband. And she anointed his feet with the ointment that she brought. Now when the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, this is an inner thought that he had, inner monologue here. This, is, this freaks me out so bad, okay, how this goes. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus were truly a prophet, then he would know who this woman is. He would know what sort of woman is touching him. He would ne- Jesus would never allow this if he was a prophet, is what, is what Simon is processing, because she's a sinner. He's trying to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. He's assuming Jesus isn't really a prophet, and he's thinking if Jesus really knew, then this would never happen. He's, he's, Simon's trying to kind of like bail out Jesus' reputation a little bit here in the midst of a very embarrassing moment at his nice, fancy religious dinner party, okay? Verse 40, Jesus answered Simon. Simon's thought. Jesus like, you better not think bad thoughts around Jesus because he knows, okay? Jesus says out loud to Simon, calls him out while the woman is still sitting there weeping. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Which should have made Simon go, no, I'll, I, I'm sorry, whatever I did. I don't need to, you don't have to do what you're about to do. He says, say it, teacher. And he's there. He's in front of all of his peers. He's loving this, man. He got the Jesus of Nazareth to come to his house. And now he's compromised himself. Think of the dirt that Simon's going to get to spread tomorrow. This guy's not a prophet. He hangs out with prostitutes. He let a sex worker cry onto his toes. Oh, this is going to be huge tomorrow. Simon can't wait. He's like, come on, Jesus, say it. Give me more. Let's make this thing even crazier. I can't wait to tell everybody. Jesus tells a story. He says, a certain money lender had two people who were in debt to him. One owed $500 and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? He's asking Simon. Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus is setting the context of what he's about to say, the point he's going to actually make, by getting himself and Simon on the same page. He's establishing, because this isn't always true with the Pharisees, that Simon is not so committed to appearing to be right that he's actually willing to lie. So that's good. It's the only good thing Simon does in this whole story is tell Jesus the truth. Verse 44. Now he turns toward the woman. Jesus turns toward the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? What a question. Do you see her, Simon? I mean, do you, I heard your thoughts. Maybe, maybe I'm sitting in the way. Did you not know she's here? Do you see her? Before Simon can answer, he says, I entered your house, Simon. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. And she's wiped them with her hair. He's talking Simon through the details of this thing. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet, the dirtiest part of me, with ointment. In other words, Simon, you had a responsibility and an obligation to host me, and you failed. And instead, this woman has had to come in off the street, and she has had to become the host of this party in your place. And she's done a far better job than you ever intended to do. She's washed my feet, she's hosted me, she's welcomed me, she has loved me. Then he says to Simon, therefore I tell you her sins, which yes, Simon, are many. Okay, they are, there's a lot. All that judgment, whatever, there's reasons behind that. But they are forgiven now, why? Because she loved me much. 
Because Simon, he who is forgiven little, loves little. Who could we be talking about, Simon? Who could I be maybe hinting at? You want the dirt at your fancy dinner party? Here's the dirt. It's you. You're filthy. You don't forgive. You can't forgive. You don't have the capacity because you haven't experienced what this woman has lived. And then he turns to her in verse 48 and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Now those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? They can't believe this Jesus would claim to be God. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now you may go in peace or you may go and live with peace. Jesus says it saved you. He's talking in terms of salvation. It's the same as what we read about Zacchaeus. Jesus, sitting at a table, in a home, over a meal, interacts with a person who has real problems, who desperately wants to find out how they can be forgiven and loved. And I mean truly loved, unconditionally, which is honestly what all of us are looking for. These people were not persuaded. They were not convinced. They were not sold by clever strategies or a bombardment of scriptures that, frankly, neither of these people would have ever even cared about because they were living in sin. They were seen by Jesus, they were acknowledged by him, they were preferred by him over the religious elite. He engaged them personally, embraced them, and ultimately they were transformed. So church hospitality is not a forerunner to evangelism. Hospitality is not when nice Christians invite nice Christians over for dinner. Hospitality is evangelism. If for you and I, our concept of hospitality is that we can politely trap a person in our home over dinner so that they have to either endure our gospel presentation or risk hurting our feelings, we've missed the mark. The hospitality is the point. The shared life is the point. The inviting a person in and making them welcome and making sure that they understand that there's nothing else you expect from them but to just let your lives overlap is the point. And frankly, the power of the gospel is sufficient to leverage every single moment of that. All of it. From the beginning of time, you go back to Genesis chapter 2, and the the third thing God does in creation is create food to eat. Food has always been sacred. It's always been a part of God's plan. Genesis 2.8 says that when God made the trees that bear seeds and bear fruit, not only were they good to eat, they were good to look at. So you could argue even the presentation of the meal has been a part of God's plan forever. There is something so sacred about dining together, and you and I live in a culture that wants us to pop something in the microwave or swing through McDonald's and get on to the next thing. And we're missing it. And we can sense that we're missing it, but we're not going to replace that by trying to memorize a bunch of facts and then shotgun them at strangers. We're going to get better at this by slowing down, creating margin, and willingly choosing to engage in hospitality. And what I can promise you is if you will do that, you will see results, if that's the category you want to use, in ways that you have never experienced in your faith in evangelism. God will change people's lives at your counter, on your couch, at your table. In his classic book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard said this about this story. He said, when we see Jesus as he is, we must either turn away or else shamelessly adore him. That must be kept in mind for any authentic understanding of the power of the Christian faith. This woman, unlike nice Simon, Dallas takes a little stab there, she was not about to turn away. Why? Because she had been with Jesus in a way that treated her like a person, that rehumanized her, when all her life and life choices had done was dehumanize her. Similarly, Zacchaeus was a social outcast of his own design, a person equally guilty in making his own poor decisions and ruining his own life. That was objectively true. But Jesus responded with mercy, not just by talking about a mercy that existed somewhere for somebody or trying to define mercy theologically, but by actually being merciful. Is that true for us? Do we know about mercy? Have we thought about mercy? Have we hoped someday, sometime, somebody would show us mercy? Or are we people who can actually be merciful? 
Can we be at the point where we have power over another person because of the position they put themselves in and choosing not to shame them, instead lift them up? Do you have the capacity? If not, pray for that. That's a, a thing that God wants to grow in you. Jesus' response to these people is infinitely better than I think the way that most of us would have responded to them. Most of us, even if we were too scared to say it because we try to be polite as much as we can, we would at least internally think to ourselves that this person should have made better decisions and then they would be better off. They put themselves in this position. They should know better. This is often our immediate reaction to the poor or the addicted or the marginalized. Jesus' gospel has no concept of bootstraps. It does not compute moral initiative as valuable. It's not part or a path to a better life or to better relationships or happiness. Jesus invites himself over, sits down at the table, and then makes people new. Not better, brand new. And then he does it again. And he does it again and again. And the whole time that he's dining with others, that he's sitting with them in, in a, a realm of hospitality, he's caring for you. He's laughing with you. He's crying with you because he loves you. He doesn't, like many Christians, need to try to fix you on the front end. As Jesus sits close and listens late into the night or shares good food and drink, he is fixing you. That's what he's doing by spending time with you. He's bringing you close. He's healing what's broken. He brings healing as he invites you to be healed. He tells you the truth as he invites you to believe in the truth. They go together. Jesus' gospel is embodied, it's incarnate, it's tangible, and it introduces the Bible and God's rule and Jesus' way of life as an extension of the natural overlap of not just talking about those things, but actually sharing them, actually sharing your life with another. If hospitality is showing mercy to our neighbors by sharing our domestic rhythms, then the object of that hospitality is to make a stranger into a friend and to make a friend into family. And that's a quote from a book that all of you should read called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. That's her thesis statement in that book, that hospitality turns a stranger into a friend and a friend into family. When Jesus came eating and drinking, his message, his gospel, was that the kingdom of God has come near to us. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 15. As soon as Jesus comes back from temptation, that's what he's preaching. The, the kingdom is near. It's not far. It's not on its way. It's not partially available. It has arrived in Jesus himself. And so when we introduce people to Jesus... Excuse me. We give them immediate access to every solution that their life could possibly need. So we don't have to try to present those solutions first. We can start with Jesus. If we start with Jesus, we are starting with the best news we could give anybody, with the solution. As Jesus ate and drank, he extended a welcome. He extended an invitation into God's kingdom to everybody that he spent time with. And that's the point of our hospitality too. It's to also extend the same invitation that whoever you are, whatever you've done, you are welcome in God's kingdom if you will come in by way of Jesus, by way of his life and his death and his resurrection. Then you can come in. So for those of us who are following Jesus, I hope the next step in the journey is clear to you. It would be good and right for you, not because I'm trying to make you feel guilty, but because the scriptures, I believe, have laid out a clear pattern for you to engage in sharing your domestic rhythms with your neighbors. That's the only application I have for you today, to push back against the excuses, your personality. You may be an introvert. I am. I recharge alone with a book and nobody else. Not a good reason to not follow Jesus. You may feel too busy. You may say your stage of life is too chaotic. You may think your home is too small. You may feel that you're a bad cook. I'll just say you can show hospitality over delivered pizza. It's okay to do it that way, okay? It doesn't have to be this elaborate homemade meal. 
but it's the decision to welcome a neighbor into what you've already got going on. And frankly, if you're following Jesus, you have a lot to offer other people. The normal, simple rhythms of your life are so much more life-giving than anything anybody else is wasting their time on. So suspend whatever agenda you have that might be built on guilt and spend time knowing people. Listen to them. Learn about them. Love them through your disagreements. Love them through all the pain that they may have even caused themselves. This is your homework because this is the way of Jesus. So I pray that you'll be serious about embracing this as soon as you can. I would go so far as to say that some of us probably even need to cancel life group this week so that our families can spend time inviting others into our homes and engaging with them in the interest of sharing our lives together. That is your choice to make. I'll say to you, again, there's no points to be scored here, but I would encourage you to consider this, because if you're just going to sit and listen and leave and nothing changes, I've wasted my time and you have too. So I want to leave you with the invitation of Jesus. This is the invitation he extended to Zacchaeus, to the unnamed woman who washed him with her tears, to his disciples. He extends it to you and I. It's the invitation that we extend when we open our homes and we live our lives in the hope that we might turn a stranger into a friend and a friend into family. And it comes from Isaiah 55. It's Old Testament. This is the call of God to all people. He says this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come and buy wine, come and buy milk without money and without price. In other words, receive from me freely. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. David there is representative of God's covenant. That's why he's speaking in terms of that man's name. He says, Behold, I made David a witness to the peoples. I lifted him up as a leader, as a commander. And now you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. In other words, when God elevates you, when he lifts you up, when he gives you influence or position, the objective of that is to be a light to the people around you. This is the Sermon on the Mount, just a few hundred years early. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and return to our God who will abundantly pardon. That's the destination. God forgives. God loves. That's what we all want. And it's honestly what we have to offer. And I believe that if we could rally around that concept and engage with that, we would see transformation in our spheres of influence unlike we've seen in a very long time. I hope you'll take God's challenge. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the chance to engage with your word today. I pray that you would rewire us a little bit, our thinking, God, not that there's never room to present the gospel clearly, verbally, immediately, rapidly. There's many moments in which telling your story is the absolute best use of our time to do it in a way that's succinct, to do it in a way that, that can communicate quickly the value that you have. But I pray, God, in addition to those momentary needs, that you would build rhythms into our life where we extend our lives into the lives of others, that we build lasting relationships, that we create bridges where there's only separation. I think, God, of the book of Ephesians, when the Apostle Paul says that you, Jesus, tore down the dividing wall of hostility, not just between man and God, but between person and person. Any issue that separates us, we believe the gospel can bridge those gaps. So would you teach us, Father? Would you teach us to embrace the table? Would you teach us, frankly, to get over ourselves, our fear, our inhibition, our own busyness, and to prioritize your way, believing that as we sit together, as we eat together, as we drink together, as we know one another, that you will maximize those relationships. 
and that we'll find the people who we love who currently live in darkness are able to move into light by way of repentance, interaction with you, and God, that if we could just be a part of that, that's all we want. We love you, God. We believe that your intention is that we be a light in the darkness, and I pray that as we continue to work through these broad concepts in the next few weeks, that you would instruct us in your way. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name.